0: Special this week, we're giving you a little taste of the bonus content we put up on our Patreon every week. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey for access to our old tiny crimies, as well as the newly introduced monthly bonuses where we delve into some areas that we don't really cover on the main feed. Enjoy! You're listening to Old-Timey Crimey,
1: crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott.
0: Hey, it's Old-Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Amber. And Scott is currently recovering and resting and getting well, we hope. So send all of your your, your thoughts towards him that he feels better soon. So I'm sure some of you heard the sickness in his voice last week and he still has whatever's bugging him. So we're just going to hope that he eats lots of chicken noodle soup and drinks lots of fluids. We love you, Scott. We love you, Scott. Get well. Stop being sick. Yes. So this is a tiny for our patrons. Hi, patrons. It's so good to be in your ears. I love saying things that are ever so slightly uncomfortable for you. That is a little uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I and like, like it, it in your ears. Yeah. So I am going to be telling for Amber and for you, our wonderful patrons, the story of the Middlebury does. The Middlebury Does? That's right. So when you I say doe, think Jane John Doe. Oh. Yes. Oh.
1: I really thought it was about deer for a minute. And I was like, <laughs> wait. wait.
0: <laughs> no, it's not doe, a deer, a female deer. It's doe, a person, a missing person. <laughs> Unidentified. So That's our yeah. new theme song. It's, it's also a much sadder <laughs> song. So... This is in Vermont. We remain, we're doing the main episode in Vermont. And this actually, I found this in that DC, in a DC Evening Star article that referenced the case that we're doing in the main episode. And so I was like, well, that seems promising. And here we are. So it's not too far away. This is in Middlebury, Vermont, which is two hours north of Bennington, which is where we'll spend most of the main episode. And it happens on May 15th, 1935. Now, Middlebury is a very small town today. We're talking like 400 people back then. The most recent census was the 1930 census, and that had the population at 3,000. So still a small town, but not nearly as small as it is today. Now, is that because people disappeared? They're like, let's just go (laughs) elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Or so many people disappeared that it decreased the population.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Quite the tale. I don't think I'd be able to save that for a tiny.
1: <laughs> no, they, they would have changed it to Murder Town instead of Middletown.
0: Oh, that's very good. <laughs> Murderberry, actually, it would be Murderberry. It's sorry, Murderberry. There you go. Murderberry, Vermont. Oh, I'm sorry, Middleberry, but it's happening. It's happening. It needs to happen. So one fun fact about Middleberry is, have you ever seen the sitcom New Heart with Bob Newhart, or heard of it. Um, Yes, it was on Nick at Night when I was young, I believe. Yes, he, in that sitcom, moved to an inn in Vermont with his wife, and that was the Wayberry Inn, which is in Middlebury. So that was the uh, exterior shots, you know? So they were population 399 and 400. (laughs) Yes, yes. So yeah, that was used, um, and it, it's it's quite old. It was actually first opened in eighteen eighteen. So that's it's, and it still stands today. It's still an, an inn. We can go stay there. If there's you know when there's not a global pandemic raging. Are there still wenches there? Because I feel like there would have been wenches. I don't believe there are still wenches, but uh, maybe we could make a special request. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So on May fifteenth, nineteen thirty-five, in Middlebury, Vermont, it's a nice day. Uh, so two women decide they're going to go for a little walk. Now these women are Mary Degg and Inez Perry, who is Mary's eighteen-year-old daughter. They end up on an old logging road, and they're a few miles outside of town. Their big goal here is to find and pick some mayflowers. It's very New Englandy. That is very New Englandy. <laughs> yeah. So they're on their way back after having been picking flowers and they're on this logging road and Inez spots this white rock and she gives it a little, just a little kick. You know, you see a rock, you give it a little kick down the road, see how far it goes. It's a totally naturally, natural thing to do if you're just, you know, strolling along, but um, it wasn't a rock. It's a skull and it rolls over. Uh, To show her just how much it's not a rock by showing her empty eye sockets and a bullet hole. That is amazing. That is how movies start. (laughs) It really is. It's very cinematic. It doesn't even sound real life. I love it. So um, she didn't really love it. But what you're really going to not love is that Inez and Mary then go for help. And their first stop is the farm where Mary's husband works. But when they tell their story, all the men there dismiss it as, quote, tomfoolery, end quote. Or ladylike hysteria. Yeah, right, right. I, I swear, like any minute one of these one of these women's just gonna drop in an everlasting faint. <laughs>
1: everlasting faint. Everlasting faint. Dainty lady heart
0: attack. So dainty. <laughs> dainty heart attack. <laughs> It's not even attack. It's a dainty heart snuggle. Yeah, right. Because attack
1: is far too violent for yeah, a, too a lady, too masculine.
0: So, yeah. After the men finish their chores and have some dinner, they go and they find out that it's not fucking tomfoolery.
1: But in their defense, kind of. I mean, it's a skull, so it's it's obviously too late for that person.
0: You're not wrong. (laughs) You're not wrong about that. I would argue it's still not to be dismissed as tomfoolery, though. But it was a lady that said it. So there's that. Then then, then, therefore it must be tomfoolery. It can only be tomfoolery. I still deal
1: with that at work all the time. Because I'm a lady. And what do I know? It's
0: nice that we've made absolutely no progress in 20 years. Because I can remember when I worked in tech support for an internet service provider. And... Uh, I would get calls where they said, you know, oh, I don't want some little girl telling me what to do. You don't know anything, little girl. let me talk to a man. So I would send them over to our youngest tech. He was really good at finding the workarounds where you had to talk on the phone the least amount of time possible because this was the days of dial-up. So you try one thing unless they have a, a dedicated phone line, they got to hang up before they can call back again. Is it wrong that I, I missed those days? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was nice. It was nice being able to get off the phone with somebody so that they could go ahead and give it a try. And then just hoping that you never had to talk to that person again, or at the very least, they'd end up talking to somebody else. So, yeah. I mean, But at the same time, like I think,
1: I think that uh, our company has the ability to disable a phone modem and make the call hang up.
0: There is that. That's that's there's angry. that. <laughs> yeah, whoopsies didn't mean to do that reboot. Oops. <laughs> so that night, the sheriff and the county state's attorney are out there. And a uh, word of note there is no state police at the time. We're gonna find out about that in the main episode. And word has gotten out to some of the locals, so they come to help, aka gape. <sighs> or poke things with a stick. That's also possible. Oh, there's there's more than that. Just just wait. Just wait. So, they look around a little bit by the time the sun sets, they've found three bodies. Notice I don't say they've dug them up cuz there was not actually much digging to be done. They're in what's first called an army duffel bag, but in the articles where they say that, they don't clarify what it actually was or why it was only initially called that. I'm not so I'm not sure if it was actually an army duffel bag or just a regular duffel bag. And it was covered with leaves and pine needles. Not very well hidden, then. Just kind of like, I'm going to stick
1: this here, and it'll probably be a while before anyone stumbles upon it.
0: Yeah, I mean, because even though you're close to a town that has 4,000 people, it's still Vermont. And it's very, very rural. And I can imagine there would be plenty of perfectly suitable dumping grounds for people to dispose of uh, other people and there's every chance that they would never be found just because there's many very remote locations that don't take you that long to get to well yeah and well in fairness though like we're in
1: the Appalachians too so like there are a lot of places that probably wouldn't be found for a very long time just saying
0: it is seriously even more up there. Like, it is really, there are so many like huge remote locations that it's just like mountains and mountains and mountains for like, I don't even want to give an, an exact number because I'm not an expert on Vermont geography, but. <laughs> Maybe I should move. Maybe, yeah. Because I, when I was reading some for our main episode, I was reading somebody's blog post who had actually gone up there. And the way that they described it, it's like, Pennsylvania's remoteness but throw in some nice heavy-duty steroids because where you have remoteness you have hermits oh yeah no absolutely love hermits they're great so yeah they do find three bodies they have been there so long that a tree root has grown over one of the legs so this is not recent That also is
1: very, very movie-like. That, that does not sound like real life. That sounds like a, a very cinematic kind of picture.
0: Yeah, like I can imagine the opening scene where this happens to people but the, the, the perpetrator is faceless and we don't see them. And then over the course of, of years, you have that feeling you get where they change the lighting and they speed things up. So it's like, oh, it's night, it's day, it's night, it's day, it's spring, summer, fall, you know, like, and that's happening. And then there's snow and then there's spring flowers. And this super time lapse montage. Exactly. And then as that's happening, the root is growing over the leg slowly. I can see, I can totally see it very clearly in my mind.
1: You hear that, Hollywood? We got ideas for you. Come on.
0: Look at us. We're already writing this script and we're only one page into the story.
1: We could probably make this like a murder book. I think we should write it on Murderbury, Vermont. Murderbury,
0: yes. Murderbury could be the title. So there are houses actually not too far away. But in, in these days in rural Vermont, I mean, think about the 1930s. Light, you know... It, 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 it's not, everything's not nearly as well it you don't have nearly as much light pollution as we have now. So the killer probably thought that there was, you know, nobody really close around and the bodies turn out to be those of a woman and two small children. Oh. yeah, I know now at first they can't really establish any details. It does take a while. But eventually they say that the mother is around 5'2". And she's probably between 35 and 45 years old. And the younger child is between the ages of 9 and 11. The oldest child is between 13 and 15.
1: Oh,
0: That information, I feel like, takes quite a while to come around, too. Because this was in 1935. And Harvard came out with a sort of autopsy report in 1938 that we're going to talk about. So I feel like that information, like, they might have had much vaguer idea of what was, you know, what, what, what the characteristics were, or at least ages were. But until that report came out from Harvard, they didn't have anything definitive, you know, like really even close to a range. Wow. So there was the question of whether they were from the same family, but that couldn't be definitively answered at the time without DNA. However, they did say, well, the bone structures are pretty similar between each victim, and they also seem to have a tendency towards anemia so our best guess is yes this is a mother and her children and at first that they think the children are a boy and a girl we're going to see that later get changed to two boys but there's also some reports like the first news article i found about it that led me to this case said it was two girls so who knows every possibility is 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 alive and well here except for i think
1: it's probably a little more difficult to determine with the pelvises before they hit puberty absolutely that's that's really when the bones take their definition
0: yeah if i'm remembering correctly it is the younger child that keeps changing back and forth so i'm sure you're absolutely accurate there so murder seems pretty obvious straight off the bat we talked about the first skull having uh, a bullet hole through it Each one has unmistakable gunshot wounds on the skull and they're clean shots straight through. Articles say that they're shot around the temple, but you can actually find there are pictures uh, in the article that's in the show notes from the Burlington Free Press. It'll be the first link in my sources. There are pictures of two of the skulls. So you can see for yourself where the bullet wounds are. Spent way too much time today having those on my monitor. And so the mother's is like, everything says the temple, but the mother's is more like right above the eye, like middle of the forehead-ish. And the youngest boy is more the side of the head, if that gives you any indication. And then the the eldest boy, they didn't have a picture of that one, but I'm assuming probably the same. Now, some people jumped to maybe murder-suicide, but somehow they determined that the mother was right-handed. And she had been shot above her left eye, which is not something you would really do. And yes, I did try out the actual gesture just to verify that when I read that bit of information. I'm sure that was not disturbing for anybody. <laughs> just sitting there like, nope, that doesn't feel natural at all. Nope, nope. Everybody at home, pretend to shoot yourself with your non-dominant hand. It's uncomfortable. You know what, though?
1: Like it's It's opposite for me because I'm actually left-handed, but I do everything right-handed. So even though my left is my dominant hand, when I shoot, I shoot with my right.
0: Well, there you go. See, it's not definitive by any means. And I'm not even sure how they knew which hand was her dominant hand. And she could have been ambidextrous for all we know, you know? But, like, honestly, I I
1: think that would be easy enough because, like, I don't know about you, but I have a a bump on my middle finger on my writing hand. And I'm constantly holding a, a pen or a pencil like, I, I'm pretty sure that there's, like, maybe grooves from just writing. That'd yeah. be my guess. I don't know that, but I'm
0: guessing. That's true. That's a good point. That would be one way that you could see. I'm sure that there are, there are many more. I mean, me, I guess you have that, and then you have that my index finger on my right hand tends to have shorter nails because those are the ones that break more easily because I'm using that hand more, and it's just, you know, probability kicks in. So, So. This is the time frame. Scientists would say that it was anywhere from one to five years before they were discovered. Anywhere from 1930 to 1934. But we might be able to pinpoint it a little bit closer than that. A lot closer than that, actually. Because a farmer remembered when he was fixing up that road in May of 1932. And he piled up some logs at that exact spot. A hunter was in that exact area in November of that year and the pile of logs was gone, but there was a horrible smell that sent him, you know, he was like, I'll I'll just hunt elsewhere because of course you're not going to find very many live animals where there's the scent of decay. They're going to be turned away by that. Yeah. Except the scavengers, maybe. Scavengers. Yeah. But generally scavengers aren't really. That's not what you want to (laughs) eat. Exactly. Yeah. So Yes, it probably, there's a very good chance, if those are reliable, that it happened between 19, May and November of 1932. Okay, well, we got it narrowed down a little, at least. Yeah, yeah. So one of the first suggestions uh, that comes to everybody's mind is bootlegging. There's This is a primary for bootlegging. This is close to one of the main routes for, for transportation of alcohol. It's that time period that could stretch out here where these victims could have been killed was towards the end of Prohibition. So there was this idea of, oh, maybe they'd seen too much, you know, that, that idea. But nothing ever really pans out there. So they do get a detective on the case. Detective Almo B. Franzoni. He is an employee of the Vermont Attorney General. Now, the first thing that they need to figure out is, whose skeletons are these? I mean, we have victims. It's going to be awfully hard to find the person who did this, unless we can figure out who they are to begin with. We know victimology is a thing. It was a lot less developed back then, but it is very important to understand the victims in order to figure out the, the actual criminal and the crime. So but I a, feel
1: like I was going to say, I feel like if this was like a domestic violence thing where like a guy kills his
0: wife and kids, they're not going to be reported missing. There is that. Yeah. Maybe not by him but potentially by somebody else that knows them. You know, as long as they're not completely isolated, as long as somebody knows at least somewhat their daily, weekly, monthly routine, if there's somebody they see on that basis, Three years have gone by. At some point during that three years, somebody's going to be like, you know, I haven't seen Jane in like two years. And she was supposed to come by every month, you know, <laughs> like we had coffee every month and then she just suddenly stopped. Or, or a teacher that had the kids in class, maybe
1: like they haven't been to school in a really long time. I don't think they moved. I saw their
0: dad. Acquaintances some- at church, local businesses, you know, it's hard to be completely isolated. As much as we talk about hermits, that's usually one person living out in the woods, not a family. True. True. All right. Fair enough. Sorry. No, 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 no. You're good. I like, I like the theorizing. It works. So um, they start trying to identify the victims. Even after going nationwide, they find nothing. The victims are described as persons of apparent wealth. And we'll get to the reasoning why in a minute. What they find around the bodies is matted hair But the description of this does not help anyone because it's said to be blonde, but also dark and possibly auburn. So it's all the colors at the same time matted up in the dirt. Exactly. Very helpful. Very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's several inches long. They find part of a pillow. So there's this idea of maybe the victims were sleeping and they were shot in bed and then brought here to the dumping site. There's a scrap of silk that is likely from a lady's dress. There's a piece of a wool blanket. And there are pieces of, this is interesting, a striped canvas awning that's either green and tan or black and tan. And there are four small block pulleys attached to it. So like an awning, and then you would have pulleys attached to it so that you could retract it as necessary. Now, that sounds like something the bodies were wrapped in. Yes. Yes, along with that piece of a wool blanket. And obviously this stuff is degraded. There's been plenty of time and, you know, environmental factors to the extent that, you know, the the skull was just a skull. So, a canvas awning, a, a wool blanket, that stuff it, that may have been fully intact when it was first there is is going to be very, very much degraded. Now, <laughs> we talked about scavengers. Well, what about the scavengers of human variety because in 1985 a man named Conrad Lecompte admitted that he stole a piece of the blanket and a scrap of the canvas awning from the scene. Well, that that was that was really common back in the day, like people
1: would would come into murder scenes and destroy the scene of the crime so they could get a good look and mm-hmm. half the time they stole stuff.
0: It's rare that we actually have somebody admit it and put their name into the press though. <laughs>
1: It was old
0: at that point. So oh, he was I'm probably sure. like, fuck it. Whatever. I'll let you know what I saw. It had been 50 <laughs> years. Uh, people also took pictures of the crime scene and sold them at the fair that year. So, fun. Uh, I don't know how detailed those pictures were. That's
1: what I go to the fair for, is to find pictures
0: of dead bodies. I know, right? I mean, that and, and cake. kettle cake. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> Excellent. They also found a, a single snap that they sourced it back to, it belonged to a side curtain of a car, and which, who knows, maybe some they used as a curtain from a car also as part of the, the wrapping for the bodies, and under uh, one of the skulls was found a bullet. It was flattened, found to be likely from a Colt Automatic 38 caliber. No, I'm I'm surprised by
1: that. So, do you think it was like stuck in like clothing or something like that, and
0: then it degraded? Because I thought all the shots were through and through. I mean, well, I don't know. I don't know that they all went exactly through and through. Like I said, I'm able to see the, the the skulls, but only one angle of them. Oh, um, so maybe it just jiggled out over time. Yeah, yeah, it's entirely possible. So. Or, you know, like you said, could have gotten cotton clothes, something like that. We have no idea, honestly. But one of the biggest potential leads that they found was the eldest child had had extensive dental work performed, about $1,500 worth of work, which is, you want to guess what it is today? Mm, 20,000 you're close $28,000 in today's money. I'm getting better at this. You are you really are. So that, <laughs> was, that was what influenced this idea that this was an affluent family.
1: Because not a lot of people could afford that they would just been like, Alright, I'm gonna pull these teeth out with pliers. It's fine.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Now the thing about this dental work is it was a gold band around the teeth in the upper jaw it was uh, an Angles ribbon, which is a type of appliance invented by Edward Angle, the father of American orthodontics. So pretty specific. We've talked previously about dentistry and how some dentists can notice others work and like pinpoint whose it is. And it's really strange and, we're... and creepy, but accurate. accurate. Yes, it's creepy it's for sure. Now, the state attorney went and consulted a graduate of the Angle school, and he was like, this could have been done anywhere, even potentially at a clinic for the less fortunate. So that, I think, puts a little dent in the certainty of this affluent family idea. It's not saying it's not true, but there's a less, less of a chance that it's absolutely true. So, it's my feeling. But you know what? Like, at the same time, maybe the clinic could actually do it. But would they? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Would they do something so expensive when maybe they could have cheap out, you know? Yeah, especially when, like, the the material is gold, but, hey, we could use this
1: aluminum. We're going to use the aluminum.
0: Exactly. There's every possibility. So, yeah, they did look. They searched and searched through the region. And then the country trying to find this particular dentist or orthodontist. They even got FBI assistance in this search. They put a write-up of the case in national journals, interviewed hundreds of dentists, and this is impressive. They tracked down the company that made the dental materials found in the victim's mouths to a company in Philly. And they must have been so frustrated when that didn't pan out to anything. Man... Like that is such good gumshoe work that is getting down in the trenches and the research and everything. And when for it to be absolutely nothing has got to be like, oh, you got to be kidding me. What do we have to do to solve this damn thing?
1: Yeah, they get to fill in. They're like, we ship this all over the country. I don't know. I'm sorry, man. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and we don't keep records at all. So good luck. One orthodontist who was interviewed for the article I read about this suggested that maybe they couldn't find the dentist who did the work because he didn't want to be found because it was his own family. Dun, dun, dun. No, it wasn't. It could have been. It could have been because I i don't think I'm spoiling anything. This is still the Middlebury Doe's case. Yeah. Not... They, we're not going to get a solved mystery here. We're in unsolved mysteries territory. So um, it's going to be a super, super frustrating week for everybody listening because it's all unsolved. So we're going to have to go make sure we do solved next week. <laughs> there was a period of time when it was at first when it was just Scott and I, we kept on doing unsolved and did so many in a row by accident, not even thinking about it, that we got really frustrated and we were like, oh, my God, can we just do one solved case? Just one. Just one. Could something actually like happen and we learn something? yeah, solved. We promise. Almost certainly solved next week. (laughs) There was one potential lead when a dentist in New Jersey said he thought the work matched that that uh, had been done for the kid of a New York stockbroker. And that stockbroker had a wife and two kids that he reported missing. But they were later found and good for them. They were all alive. But that doesn't answer any of our questions. So. Now, Detective Franzoni is on the case, and his first lead is a man named R.R. Luding. Now, Looting had been staying at a hotel in Mid- Middlebury. In the articles, they call it the Middlebury Hotel. There's not currently one there. I was I really wanted to have locations and go like spend an hour and a half on a fucking map like I love to do. <laughs> Like, I really like to get down into the details with stuff like that, especially with unsolved cases. But, you know, so much time has passed. Locations change names and you can't really track that down. So all I can say is the Middlebury Hotel was in Middlebury somewhere. (laughs) That's all I'm giving you. Good enough. Yeah, it works. So Looting was from Buffalo. He was driving a car with Indiana plates and staying in Middlebury. And he used that car to follow investigators to Burlington from Middlebury, which is a 35 mile drive, but still, country roads. Even today, that 35 miles is almost an hour's drive. So it's, it's not super fast going. Uh, this was after he had uh, expressed great interest in the finding of the skeletons. But so did the people who came and took damn pictures of it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, but the other people weren't stalking the police. There is that. There is that. Unless you count them being at the crime scene at the same time as the police, in which case they kind of are. They, they could be considered to be stalking, you know. A little. So I'm, I'm pushing it. But So he didn't really pan out. And then they got interested in somebody else pretty quick. Franzoni starts looking at a man named Denton. Now, his first name was either Irving or Arthur. I think it doesn't matter because both of them sound very fake. Yeah, fake name, Irving Denton, Arthur Denton. I mean, maybe it's because you know, like Arthur Dent being a, a character from literary history. But I, I honestly just think Arthur Denton or Irving Denton both sound fake.
1: Yeah, no, it's fake news. Um, but maybe <laughs> maybe Denton is for like dentist.
0: Ooh, oh my. It's like when you have a character who's trying to come up with a fake name and then they look at the table and they say the first thing they say, like, my name is Sandwich Spoon Peter <laughs> Griffin. <laughs> yeah, or that. This is, this is closer to that, where he's like, John Denton. <laughs> name is Bob Orthodontics. I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> oh, episode title. So um, Middlebury residents first start noticing Denton years before the bodies are found. Uh, in August of 1931, he's been attracting some notice by just throwing money around. He buys some pricey stuff in cash, like a nice Ford, some really good choice property, and he acts about as shady as you possibly can. He tells all of his neighbors to stay the hell away from my property. And as if that's not enough, uh, he apparently really doesn't trust them because he whitewashes all of his windows and blackens his lights. That is nearing psychological issue territory, I think. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not healthy. That's for sure. But I might be a vampire. Yeah. Vampire Early, dentist. Vampire dentist. Early 1932, he just bolts. Uh, he sells the property outright and he's gone. So it's if we're counting on that 1932, like May to November timeframe, it doesn't work. But uh, if they were, let's say there was a long winter and the bodies were there in the cold in Vermont through the winter of 1932, and then in May, when that farmer piled those logs there, they hadn't had quite enough time. I, I don't know. I'm not really buying it because bodies, I think, start to smell pretty quickly, especially once you get even a little hint, of whiff of May heat. So I'm not really buying my own attempt to make, make this puzzle piece fit, but there is a possibility if weather conditions were exactly perfect for what I have in mind here. So, But that's it. So nothing more from him. And then the next person of interest was Harold Young. He had been in Burlington since 1929. Burlington being, like I said, about 35 miles away. Uh, He started up a store up there selling tea. It was kind of part of a franchise sort of, but this is also, you know, the end of prohibition. So he was probably selling some less than legal beverages as well. And he had come up to there from Buffalo People said he had a thirty-eight caliber Colt, but unless somebody is like, no, I saw him with a thirty-eight caliber Colt, I, I as a policeman would not put much stock in this. You're you're chasing ghosts at that point. If it's, you know, it seems silly, but he also was said to have had a wife and child, an eleven-year-old girl, back in Buffalo, and the landlord of his, the building his store was in, said at one point, Young got word they were coming to Burlington. And he freaked out when they got there. Soon after that, all three of them left for a few days. And then Young came back alone. And shortly after that, he left and hadn't been seen since. But he only had one child, right? There is that, yes. Um, The canvas awning of his store was reported to be reminiscent of the awning that was found at the scene. But later, many, many years later, archivists are doing some research into this and they find out there never was really a Harold Young. And they find a Harold West who had a store for that same tea company. He left the tea company to manage a creamery in Fulton, New York. And then he became a grocer and lived with his his wife, Clara, according to a 1930 census. And I will admit... I did look up the 1940 census and started to try to do some digging. It's not digitized yet. So you have to have specific information about where someone lived. And I'm talking down to the street level. And when I couldn't find that, I did try to find Fulton area (laughs) phone books on Library of Congress. And that didn't pan out. So sometimes the research just doesn't pan out. And especially for a tiny... I can't do what I might do for a regular episode and spend six hours down that particular rabbit hole. If the information had been more readily available, A, somebody else would have found it before me (laughs) and probably already published this, especially with this case having been around for 80 years, 85 now. And uh, B, it wouldn't take me as long. So, but when it's that difficult to find, it kind of becomes like you have to weigh your priorities. So had to give that up. uh, But it seems like he doesn't even seem to have been in the area. Uh, now, Franzoni starts looking at another lead when a report comes in from Harvard in 1938. That's the sort of autopsy that I referenced. Now it was done by anthropologists because these were, again, just bones. And they these scientists looked at the remains, they tried to give some more specifics, and it seems like, if not certain, from the articles but it seems like here's where they get more specific with ages and sex of the bodies that helps to pin down maybe an actual possible family and this is i think is where the sexes change from male and female to male and male but i think franzoni does a little mental gymnastics so i'll explain in a second so this family is cora golden of milton that's about 50 miles north of middlebury and i mean that's a
1: reasonable drive for a body drop i think It
0: is, yeah. uh, In today's time, that would be about an hour and ten minutes, according to the maps. Uh, (laughs) What would that drive be in today's time? But, like, no, honestly,
1: you wouldn't want to put it in your backyard. So, you'd want to drive, like, a reasonable amount away. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. About an hour and ten minutes, sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now... She was known to have two children, Charles Jr. and Beulah. And they were seven and four in 1923, when the whole family just kind of seemed to just vanish from the map. Cora, at the time of this disappearance, was 31. Now, okay, so it comes out that the children are both male. I'm thinking Franzoni was of the mind that if the scientists had been wrong initially about the gender of the younger skeleton, they could be wrong again. Like, he's like, oh, they're just reverse annoying themselves. <laughs> you know? It's a boy. It's a girl. Yeah. It's a boy. It's a girl. Could um, go either way. Maybe he didn't decide yet. Yeah, so he's willing to be a little more flexible on the sex of the victims when he first starts digging into this. So, if the murders occurred in 1930, all the ages would have worked out. Cora would have been 38, Charles Jr. would have been 14, and Beulah would have been 11. Those are all within the range. And also their heights and general characteristics seem to match up with the bodies. Now, they were also linked to the, the disappearance of a man named Joseph Carter. Uh, I'm sorry, Joseph Napoleon Carter. Nice, right? I guess he had some French roots. Uh, he was a farmhand working in Milton in the same time frame and it seemed like he traveled with the family. Now let's take the subtext and make it a little bit more text. Cora has a child named Charles Jr. And she also has Beulah. And Joseph is now with her. Obviously, there was another man in her life. Whatever happened to him, we don't know. But Charles seems to have a different father.
1: Nobody nobody cares about Charles. (laughs) Apparently.
0: Poor Charles.
1: He could be dead. He could have married elsewhere because whatever and she, she she might have just been on her own and took up with a farmhand to help out i mean
0: 1923 charles jr was seven uh, math world war one oh or yeah 1918 flu um there was just there were a lot of things that could kill you and those were just two of them So Franzoni traced the family and Joseph Carter to Connecticut and Vermont until 1929, after which he was like, okay, now they're banished. So he's starting to think this is a really strong lead. But in April of 1938, just like four months after he gets the autopsy report, Beulah is found alive and well in Connecticut. She's being taken care of by an adoptive family. And that seems to scuttle the whole theory at first until Franzoni finds out that Cora and Joseph had another child, a boy named Francis, who was born in 1924 in Montpelier, Vermont, which yes, I looked up how to pronounce that. So that would line up even better with Franzoni's theory because now the ages and the sexes match. And Amber, I see you with an expression on your face that is like, why was Beulah adopted and the other boys apparently stayed with the mother? And all I have in my notes is kind of sucky. I had no idea. Well, she was the lucky one though. So, I mean, well, no. no, I mean, maybe, maybe she was lucky. Maybe it was a bad situation and she got out of it. I don't know. But now thanks to archivist Tanya Marshall, We know that Cora, Charles Jr., and Francis were not the Middlebury Three. Now, part of the problem with the disappearance was Cora and Joseph kind of were like, "Eh, real names, those are for the birds when they got married and had Francis. So Cora, even on Francis's birth certificate, is Cora LaFlash. Really? Really. Napoleon and LaFlash.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: And uh-huh. so Marshall found this info and then used that to follow the family. They were alive in 1930, according to the census, and lived in New York at the time. In 1938, Cora died and the father and the sons went back to Vermont. So after the bodies were found, the whole family was still alive. All right. All right. So, things that have happened since. Those were all the, the leads that they tried to go through. And now we're getting into the modern days. Hopefully, one of the things that does not happen anymore in the modern days is that the original case file does not get accidentally shredded by the Vermont Attorney General's Office, as happened in, do you want to guess what year? 1938. Add 50. Oh, are you serious? Well, I mean, they didn't have very many shredders in 1938 that I know of. But yeah, in 1988, the Vermont Attorney General's Office accidentally shredded the original case file. Oh, my God. <laughs> I knew you would have that expression. I actually was like, when I wrote that down, I was like, Amber's going to Amber's gonna lose it. <laughs> she's head, head in hands right now, like the palm, forehead. Yeah, she's face palming. She's like, what the hell? What? What the fuck <laughs> is wrong with people?
1: <laughs> right? I mean, I guess that's better than bugs or vermin ate it. Yeah. Which has happened in some of our previous tinies. But, like, still, in the 80s, you're like, what's this? It looks real old. Let's just shred it. Fuck it. Exactly.
0: Like, yeah, hopefully we stop doing that sometime soon. But I've I've, I've heard some things lately that, you know, listening to true crime podcasts enough, that there's always some missing records, so.
1: It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Probably the daughter of the dentist went and shredded it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Susie Denton.
1: (laughs) Susie Denton (laughs) hyphen orthodontic. (laughs) I really, I think I'm just bitter because I had a dentist appointment like three weeks ago and my mouth still hurts. Oh, Oh, that's terrible. Well, he dislocated my jaw, but only halfway. So it's only this side of my jaw that hurts. And so I think I'm still bitter and I'm just going to blame all the dentists. So a dentist did it. And his daughter went and shredded the records.
0: So (laughs) you are actually siding with the orthodontist who is like, maybe a dentist did it. And that's why none of them will come forward. Yes. Yes, I am. That was the last thing I expected, but I like being surprised. So it was the dentist. So DNA testing was done recently that does confirm the children are boys. They were related. We can also eliminate the entire Golden family through DNA because Biola had a relative still living who was tested and the results were compared with the victims and there is no relation. So she was just tossed in with an adoptive family, probably because boys were more useful societally speaking than girls were. Boys could do backbreaking work, but girls were like, well, you sit in the corner and sew. Yeah, well, especially if he was working
1: on a farm, he'd want the sons to work on the farm. So it, it, And it's the depression. Yeah, it, I mean, it kind of makes sense just for the fact that, like, the girl couldn't do anything to, to actually, like, dig in and work, really. So they're like, let's just get rid of the girl because we can't feed all of us.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, two, you can actually see their faces. Sort of. Two of the skulls had facial reconstructions performed and 3D models drawn up by a forensic sculpture class at the New York Academy of Art with NECMEC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children providing assistance in that endeavor. So there are models that you can see of the, uh, the mother and one of the children. In 2014, their remains were finally buried with a gravestone that announces them as three souls known only to God. The land where they've been found is now a snowmobiler's trail. So that tells you again how remote it is. And if you know anything, I know the odds are super duper slim. But if you do, contact the Middlebury Police Department at 802-388-3191. That's 802-388-3191 because this case has been unsolved for 85 years now. So that's a long, long time.
1: Now, okay, so you said they did DNA. Did they run it across the databases
0: for like Ancestry.com and stuff? I am not sure if they've done that yet or not. I feel like right now we're getting a glut of cases and uh, that, that there are going to genetic genealogists and genetic researchers and they you know, people are making requests to them. And so, A, I think if you have relatives that are still alive, you're more, the case is more likely to get attention from these people that are getting flooded with requests because they're gonna actually send in the request. And B, there's definitely more likely to pay attention to one where the relatives are still alive Rather than now where, yeah, we don't know who they are. But if those children had any siblings, they are likely dead. If that woman had any relations of hers that are alive, would probably be distant. Uh, Maybe uh, like a great niece or something like that. You know, great, great niece even. So yeah, there's nothing, there's no one to advocate for them. And so there's not really, you know, anyone to get attention for it. Which, honestly, I'd be... I'd be willing to find a couple genetic genealogists that are accepting requests and send this case their way in case they've never heard of it. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a quick email or Facebook message, and I'm sure they have plenty of others, but somebody has got to advocate, you know, for the, the nameless. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do, let's do that. We'll, we'll do that the, the, this coming, this next couple of weeks. Um, we'll, we'll send out a message. We'll find a couple genetic genealogists and DNA detectives as they're sometimes called too, and send out some messages and just give them a, a, a link to Oh, hell, we haven't had a tiny up on the main feed in too long since this is a, the Middlebury dose, and we're talking about taking some action here. Should we put it on the main feed? I feel like if it's this kind of information, it should be out there. Yeah. Maybe we can solve our first one. Or even if it's not solving, even if it's just we were tangentially related to the people who helped eventually solve it, you know, even that (laughs) would be something. So, yeah, let's 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 try and make a difference. It's just a drop in the in the pond, but it's something. So, okay, All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. An extra special thanks to our patrons. As always, thank you so much for your support. And the full episode will be up on Friday and we'll be returning to Vermont. With more unsolved frustrations. So join us for that and thank you for listening to our filthy words. Bye. Bye. My sources are Detective Chris Bodish and state archivist Tanya Marshall on the Burlington Free Press, Jillian Kuzma, Unsolved Vermont, The Harvard Crimson, The Sun Community News, John Flowers of the Addison County Independent. And an article from the Associated Press in the DC Evening Star accessed via Library of Congress.